rakan-rakan saya pun menerima keputusan yang telah dibuat oleh rakyat ataupun I accept the verdict of the people dan Parti Barisan Nasional. Hello and welcome to this new Mandala podcast, the first in a series on the theme of a new Malaysia. And that's a new Malaysia with a question mark. I'm Liam Gammon, I'm the editor of New Mandala. And before me was the former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak, rather begrudgingly conceding defeat on the night of Malaysia's 14th general election, or GE14. Roughly two months since then, the atmosphere in Malaysia remains hopeful, but kind of uncertain. The new Pakatan Harapan government has convened a so-called Council of Eminent Persons and, underneath that, a Committee on Institutional Reforms. These are made up of business people, academics, former officials and some civil society figures, and they're ostensibly tasked with providing advice to the government on how it can turn its extensive promises of reform into reality. Over the next couple of weeks, New Mandala is bringing you a series of podcasts in which our guests take a look at what is changing, what might change, and what's not going to change under Pakatan Harapan. One person who's been on the front lines of activism for a more democratic Malaysia is Dato Ambiga Srinivasan. Today, we've got a conversation with her about how civil society came to terms with its former foe, Mahathir Mohamed, and how they can exert influence on the new government. That's in the second half of this podcast. First, though, we want to set the scene a little. To talk about where Malaysia's current political moment stands in the global landscape of democratic transitions, if indeed that's what's happening, I spoke to Meredith Weiss. She's Professor of Political Science at the State University of New York at Albany, and while she researches a lot of topics on Southeast Asian politics, a major focus of her work has been on social movements and electoral politics in Malaysia. She's also a regular contributor to New Mandala, so do look her up at the site. Before we get started, I'll note that this podcast is being produced with the support of the Malaysia Institute at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Here's my interview with Professor Meredith Weiss. So, I mean, for the longest time, Malaysia was seen as an almost textbook example of what is known in political science as a competitive authoritarian regime or hybrid regime, electoral authoritarian. What do we mean exactly when we use those terms? So what we mean by competitive authoritarian regime varies in part because the terms tend to be used quite loosely in the literature, even more so when we're talking about hybrid regimes or semi-democracy or semi-authoritarian regimes. In general, within the jargon of political science, we have a continuum from, of electoral authoritarian regimes from more hegemonic regimes, where a change of government is virtually impossible, to more competitive ones, including Malaysia, in which it is possible, though really difficult. So in competitive authoritarian regimes or competitive electoral authoritarian regimes, elections are taken seriously, opposition political parties can form, but the playing field is not entirely even. Civil liberties are generally curbed in key ways, and the sorts of coalitions that make it possible for an opposition party or group to overcome a fairly dominant ruling party are hard to form. In Malaysia, for instance, we see this, and part of why Malaysia has been seen as a textbook case, inasmuch as the Barisan Nasional, the National Front, has occupied the broad center within politics. So not just a communal center, but also just sort of middle-of-the-road policies for the most part. 
that has pushed the opposition in many ways to a disaggregated set of margins. So we have a secular leftist margin, we have an Islamist margin. Those throughout Malaysian history have been the dominant sides. Since the late 1990s, we've seen a process of efforts uh, that started a little bit earlier, but really started to congeal with Reformasi to bring those margins together into a broad-based, largely centrist coalition comparable to the BN, which could then overcome the hurdles of competitive authoritarianism. So in a global sense, how commonplace is it for an opposition coalition or opposition party to overcome those hurdles? I mean, when we think about some of the cases of transitions from or within competitive authoritarianism, what do we look to? There are examples, but they're fairly rare. Um, And that's largely because we have this combination of curbs on civil liberties, association, speech, press, as well as inequities in the electoral playing field. So here in Malaysia, for instance, we have both maldistribution of seats as well as gerrymandering, and we have an incredibly short campaign period and all of these other things that make it hard to campaign and hard to win seats. So that sort of set of barriers is found across electoral authoritarian regimes, including the competitive ones, and makes it quite rare for an opposition coalition or party to come to power. We have examples. In Mexico, for instance, is the classic case where the long dominant PRI was overcome by PAN, and and now there's been a back and forth in Mexico. Elsewhere, we have more authoritarian regimes, for instance, South Korea or Taiwan, which transition to democracies. We could say the same for Indonesia. Indonesia was electoral authoritarian. There were elections, but it was much more on the hegemonic side. The opposition parties that were there were essentially formed by the state, were under the aegis of the state, had extremely curbed potential and so forth. And so it's possible, but it's really difficult. I mean, I can remember chatting with you on WhatsApp on the night of GE14. And I think you, like a lot of us, could almost barely believe that we were actually witnessing this. But A lot of your work is actually focused on the things that sort of lay the groundwork for a change of government, and I'm talking civil society movements and oppositional politics. So given that we've now had a change of government, I mean, do we need to sort of look back on those decades of Barisan rule with new eyes? I mean, was it really as, was it perhaps more democratic than it was often given credit for? No, I don't think it was more democratic than it was given credit for. If we think of democracy in terms of participation, of inclusion, of space for free association, of all of these other uh, general metrics for political liberalism, which means the constraint of the state, where the state does not intrude, Malaysia was not more democratic than we give it credit for. However, even in highly authoritarian states, there is some space for civil society. There is some space that's not fully controlled, except in the dreams of the most totalitarian leaders. In Malaysia, We did not have a totalitarian government. We did not have an authoritarian government. We had a hybrid state. So that means that there was more space for civic association, for opposition parties, and so forth, than in more authoritarian states. But it was still limited. What makes this result less surprising than it might be in, for instance, a Singapore is that there had been a long process of building to this point. So if we look at the elections even just in 2008 and 2013, we saw that the opposition coalition could win, uh, first could deny the BN its two-thirds majority in 2008, and then could actually win a majority of the popular vote in 2013. The extent of crackdown from the state in becoming less democratic, in more extreme gerrymandering, for instance, made it seem that the opposition would probably not be able to continue with that trajectory. That, I think, for me, is why it was so surprising, is that Malaysia seemed to be taking a turn toward 
a less competitive and more hegemonic point on that continuum of electoral authoritarianism. This is almost such a, a, a hackneyed question now, but how much of it really does come down to the leadership of Mahathir Mohamed? I mean, you travelled around Malaysia a fair bit during the GE14 campaign. Do you think that that was really the thing that um, tipped the scales, as it were? It mattered. I think it tipped the scales for some proportion of voters. But I think the key thing to bear in mind is that Mahathir Mohamed joined a vehicle that was already in place. He joined a coalition that already had roots, had power at the state level, was doing very well in power at the state level, had a record which allowed retrospective instead of just prospective voting. In other words, voters in other states could see what Pakatan had done in Penang and Selangor and say, yeah, this looks okay. They haven't killed anything off. It, it all seems to be flowing along pretty well. They seem to be clean, whatever else. Um, and so Mahatra was able to join his ambitions to that coalition in a way that was mutually beneficial. One really important caveat here is the number of seats that have been won by extremely small margins in recent elections, including in this one. And so tipping the scales by just a few percent, if those votes are distributed in areas that Pakatan will not otherwise make headway, which was the case, I think, for Bursatu and Mahathir, can have a profound effect. So he did help to tip the balance, but it was more a question of shifting the fulcrum than being the, the proximate cause in any true way. Getting back to this concept of democratization through elections in, in competitive authoritarian regimes, I'm tempted to ask, is this a case of democratization through elections? But of course, we won't know until it democratizes. So I guess maybe a better question is, for you, what are the really critical benchmarks in terms of political liberalization that you think we need to see in order to say Malaysia is democratizing? The most important one is in some ways the least satisfying because it takes so long. And that is to see repeated elections and the possibility of change of power. Democratization doesn't require that Pakatan remain in power indefinitely. In fact, that would probably signal, given that Malaysia has a multipolar divided electorate in important ways, would probably signal that Pakatan had simply replicated competitive electoral authoritarianism. Rather, if we see alternation in power or the possibility of it at the state and or federal level, that to me would signal democratization. But the most important steps in that direction will be a series of legislative reforms and institutional reforms, which are already on the table and some are already underway. I should point out that at the time of this recording, Parliament has yet to convene. So it's actually convening in about two days, so <laughs> let's let's not speculate because we'll probably end up with egg in our faces. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So a series of, of legislative changes that are at least under discussion, some of which will undoubtedly happen sooner rather than later, some of which may never happen. But the key ones that I think we can expect at least some progress on are to the Elections Commission and the, the process of elections and the fact that we've already had the EC and other agencies moved out from under the Prime Minister's department to be under parliamentary scrutiny, I think matters a lot. The fact that Bercy has already been invited to monitor a by-election, I think matters a lot. If we have campaign finance reform, and this is the ideal time to do it, when you have parties without money in power, that could make a big difference. If the next election has a longer lead time, so the campaign period is not a paltry nine or ten days, that would matter. All of those sorts of changes to the electoral system will matter for democratization. But on a broader level, if the Pakatan government continues with its proposals to get rid of things like the abhorrent 
Fake News Act, to reform the Printing Presses and Publications Act, to reform the Communications and Multimedia Act, to reform the restrictions that are currently in place under specific legislation and also through the police code on forms of speech and association, those things will create space for the free flow of ideas, for free association, for the ground rules and participation that enable democracy, even more than very specific changes to electoral constituencies, for instance, would do. So a lot of these things could be incremental changes that might not independently amount to what we would call a consolidated democracy, but are necessary steps in that direction. For us to see if democracy consolidates will require time. And for that, I would note that Indonesia is now 20 years past its moment of democratization, and there still is some equivocation over whether Indonesia should be considered a consolidated democracy. We have changes of government by election, but there are all sorts of weaknesses within the state in considering it to be a liberal democracy or something else. Yeah, and I wonder whether the comparison with Indonesia has something to it, because in Malaysia you may well get this big expansion of civil liberties, you may get this uh, expansion in media freedoms, much more competitive elections, decentralisation, yet some of the fundamental practices, and particularly the systems of corruption and patronage, remain more or less the same. So I guess maybe in some sense that's also a hopeful scenario, but also a cautionary tale. Speaking of the neighbours, I have two questions. Firstly... Can this happen in Singapore? And secondly, if you're another leader of a competitive authoritarian regime, either in Southeast Asia or elsewhere, what kind of lessons would you take from what just happened to Barisan Nasional? So it's important to note that Singapore is generally considered to be hegemonic electoral authoritarian rather than competitive electoral authoritarian. It has much less space for formal and informal opposition than Malaysia. I think what has happened in Malaysia will in many ways inspire and encourage and motivate opposition parties and politicians in Singapore, but is certainly not a template. And there are a couple of key reasons for that. One of the key ones is that Singapore opposition parties have no substantial history of opposition coalitions. And that is one of the key things that scholars of electoral authoritarianism suggest is necessary. That part of the way that dominant parties maintain their dominance is by fragmenting and other Otherwise, dissipating opposition challenges. So for those challenges to overcome the dominant party requires that they join forces. That's really hard in Singapore for a lot of different reasons. You have opposition parties that pursue the same catchment areas. They pursue the same sort of voters. They're not quite so clearly ideologically differentiated. Um, And there are personality issues and just manifest weaknesses in some parties versus others that just make it really hard to conceptualize an opposition coalition. Though there have been efforts to try to draw that together. Another key reason is the role of civil society. In Singapore, civil societal organizations are proscribed by a combination of law and norm from participating in partisan politics. Opposition parties shy away from links with civil society organizations for that reason and vice versa. In Malaysia, we have no such strictures and indeed it would be impossible to consider the progress of Pakatan without also considering the progress of a host of civil societal organizations. Bersi is most obvious, but it is not the only one that have helped to nurture leadership, to build support, to mobilize voters, all these other things. The third key point that I would make, especially in terms of Singapore, but that also applies to other neighboring states, is the specific trigger in Malaysia of 1MDB, of corruption, of scandals, 
people have grouses about the Singapore state, about the level of inequality, which is about the same as in Malaysia, about developmental decisions and priorities and so forth. But there is no, no counterpart to 1MDB or to the level of really rampant corruption in Malaysia, in Singapore. And so I just don't see the possibility of a similar trigger or catalyst. That, to get back to an earlier question, that's one of the key things people look at in seeing when democratization by elections might be possible is not just can the opposition parties get themselves together as their leadership and so forth, but also is there some sort of trigger? Is there in Mexico, for instance, a downturn in the availability of public resources for patronage? Or is there a huge corruption scandal? Or is there a death of a leader? So in Indonesia, we have a mixture of the Asian financial crisis, Suharto's ill health and so forth, um, which leaves Indonesia at a terrible starting point when it did begin its democratization process, but made it possible to begin. In Singapore, the sorts of proximate causes people raise are just not on the same level. So The trains that, broke down. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. So it's not to say that I don't see any dominant party as being inevitable forever. Um, the, the level of support, despite the last election's returns, which can be explained in many ways, including the shadow of Lee Kuan Yew, who had recently passed away, Support for the PAP has been on a secular decline for years now. And it, it's almost inevitable that at some point there will be a transition in Singapore. But I don't see the Malaysian transition as being what really gives the necessary spark for that. It would have to be something within Singapore rather than from outside. Finally, just reflecting a bit more on that point about the, the interactions between civil society and opposition parties in Malaysia that the Pakatan Harapan coalition got this far is really remarkable but i guess the obvious question then becomes it's 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 really an odd amalgam of all these progressive civil society activists uh, reformasi figures and amno machine men how do you see that playing out in government and what kind of intra coalition uh, infighting or power struggles does that create there are definitely tensions. I don't think that that's necessarily antithetical to good governance or to their cohering. There is something at stake now. So those who are in government now have an incentive to get their act together and stay in government. And I think that that incentive might help to smooth over what might otherwise be some serious factional differences, for instance, between the sort of core Pakatan parties of DAP Ka'adilan and Amana, as a replacement for PAS as the earlier partner, partner versus Bursatu, which is a newcomer and has a different premise, being a communal party instead of a non-communal one. So I think there is a shared incentive to cooperate, which means focusing on, as Pakatan is always focused on, whatever it can find as a common denominator. So that may be anti-corruption, good governance, uh, other sorts of reforms. It probably won't be, for instance, a radical reform of Malaysia's policies of racial preference and so forth, just because there will not be agreement on the direction for those. So I think we can see this odd mix uh, within civil society and political parties as being perhaps inevitable given a model that for so long has been based on a pre-election fixed coalition, but that also now allows some room for maneuvers. So others have suggested, for instance, that Malaysia could move more toward a system of having different state and federal level coalitions. So uh, we already, to some extent, see this with Saban Sarawak, where we have these breakaway coalitions. We might see more of that at the state level on the peninsula as well, which would allow different interests, different sets of groupings from civil society and parties to be dominant in different areas. But I think this is something we just need to watch as we go along. For now, 
even this wide range of civil societal activists, for instance, seems willing to give Pakatan a serious go and see whether it can stick to its promises. And I think the key ones of interest, especially within civil society, are ones that Pakatan will share an interest in fixing. So issues of, of civil liberties, for instance, which matter not just for human rights groups, but also for Islamist and Christian and other groups, for instance. So I think it'll just be a matter of seeing if Pakatan sticks to its guns and then if the incentive of winning again can help to keep them together. That was Professor Meredith Weiss from the State University of New York at Albany. Now, from theory to practice... Dato Ambiga Srinivasan is one of Malaysia's most respected civil society figures. She attained international prominence as one of the leaders of Bursi, the campaign for electoral reform in Malaysia. She's also a senior lawyer, having served as president of the Malaysian Bar and is currently the president of Hakam, a Malaysian human rights NGO. She's also currently a member of the Committee on Institutional Reform, an advisory body established by the new Malaysian government to advise it on, as the name suggests, matters of institutional reform. She was kind enough to sit down for an interview with Dr. Ross Tapsell, the director of the ANU Malaysia Institute. Ambega, thanks so much for Hi. joining us. Hi, Ross. So what was it that convinced you that Tun Mahathir Mohamad could lead a reformist government? Well, um, I suppose when you look at the demographics of the country... And when you see that the Malay vote is, was one of the critical things that would change this election, and they needed to hear from someone that they trusted. And, and I'm talking uh, not about the Pakatan Harapan supporters, I was talking about the uh, AMNO members and, and those who didn't trust the Pakatan Harapan. For me, it, it needed someone like uh, Tun Mahathir as well as uh, Tansri Muhyiddin former Amno stalwarts, as it were, who would be able to convince uh, that ground that it was safe to vote for Pakatan Harapan. So that was the initial thought. I, I didn't realize that he would commit so much to a reformist agenda, to be honest. Uh, when we signed up on that citizen's declaration, I, I don't know if you remember that. So at that point, it was just about uh, change, trying to bring change. But he did actually allow some reformist issues to go into the uh, citizens' declaration. So that, that, that was a good start. So as we worked together, I mean, uh, you could see that his intention was to, to reform the system. I think there was certainly a recognition that the system needed fixing, and it was because the system was so bad that we were descending into a kleptocracy. I think that's, that was how I viewed it. But a lot of the system needs reforming from the time that he was prime minister. Do you get a sense that he recognised the mistakes, if we want to call it that, from the time that he was prime minister? Or was he putting a lot of blame on the system under a Najib government? All right, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's no doubt that the system that we have inherited today started uh, during his time. Uh, look, and, and I've spent more than half my life fighting Tun Mahathir because of that. Indeed. And, and, and a number of civil society members, which was, by the way, very uh, the reason why it was difficult to get civil society to buy in to uh, 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 Tun Mahathir uh, leadership. So does he recognize? I think, you know, he, he has apologized here and there. I'm not quite sure for what. Uh, I am not convinced he thinks... 
there was anything wrong with the system when he was in power. And at this point, for me, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter as long as he is fixing the system. And I think where the elections are concerned, it's Mahathir who helped us cross that line. Uh, There was no doubt there was a huge surge in support of change and so on. But we crossed the line, in my view, because of him. So whether he has accepted that the system under him was wrong, I'm not sure, to be honest. Sure. Let's talk a bit about wider civil society. I mean, for a very long time, a lot of civil society activists, um, and including the Bursi movement, have been seen as a a pro-opposition or pro-Pakistan um, movement or connected at least very closely with opposition parties, now government parties. Um, so how do you play with the perception of being a pro-Pakatan movement uh, now that they're in government? How do you change that perception, if, if, if at all? Oh, well, you know, it's, that's not very difficult. We, we've already come out uh, being critical of this government. Um, uh, many civil society members have uh, spoken up uh, against statements made Uh, And to be fair to them, they've been quite responsive. Um, So I think our role hasn't changed. We will still keep the government accountable. Uh, I have spoken up as well, and and sometimes I'm very annoyed uh, at uh, at things that are being said, like the child marriage issue. Uh, But so, so I think it's by our conduct, actually, that we're going to show that we are still there to keep the government and is that why you turned down specific positions such as, you know, you were floated as being the head of the Electoral Commission or the Attorney General, that that was the decision you made? Actually, that's correct. I decided that I think I play a far more effective role as keeping, uh, in keeping the government accountable as opposed to being sucked into the system and then not being able to criticise it. So that, that's my view. I mean, I, I don't know, rightly or wrongly, that's, that's the decision I made. The Bursim movement was uh, such an important movement for Malaysia, but again, it's been seen, um, and you personally have stood up with opposition leaders, I think, at Bursi, or then opposition leaders at Bursi rallies. Um, what is the relevance now of, of Bursi? I mean, a lot of people say, well, you achieved your outcome, which was to bring down a Barisan national government, and it, it, you're not going to get 100,000 people on the streets anymore, right? Well, we're hoping we don't have to, uh, but let me just say this. Bursi started out, the first Bursi rally, I, I was not involved in that. It was led by uh, opposition members, then opposition members, and civil society. So it was a joint effort. So you could never run away from that connection with the opposition. Uh, I took over at Bursi 2 onwards, and then Maria, of course, came in. So uh, for me, Bursi played a fantastic role in raising awareness. But... We still, I think Bursi is still very, very important because it, it, has, it is not just about free and fair elections, it's about democracy, it's about um, having a strong parliament and so on. And Maria has issued many statements uh, in that regard. So we will have to wait and see. As I say, I hope we don't have to rally against this government and have to bring out 100,000 people. But if we have to, we will. Uh, I'm saying we, uh, I'm no longer in charge of Bursi, but I think they are very on top, still on top of what's going on. They're still issuing all the right statements and holding the government accountable. So Bursi still has a place. Well, I guess you could argue that in, uh, Malaysia needs civil society more than ever before now to, to try to 
because uh, now is the time for, for change, right? Have there been a lot of discussions within civil society actors that you uh, interact with about how to step up the process? I mean, I'm thinking personally uh, particularly about journalists and I know some people are saying, well, journalists could be doing more at the moment to be pushing for press freedom and they're not doing a, a huge amount at the moment. For example, um, are there other actors that are talking about trying to step up uh, civil society to push for broader change? Change. Okay. Uh, I think transitioning from one mindset to another is, is not that easy for, for a lot of people, and that's possibly why the journalists haven't stood up as much as they ought to. But it is very much in the minds of a, a lot of journalists, I can say that. Um, and this uh, Committee for Institutional Reform, for me, is, is, is absolutely critical at this time. And, and for me, that's where I, I'm exactly where I want to be right now, which is to push the reform agenda. And, I, and we have met with many civil society representatives. They see this as a way of pushing the reform agenda. So if you're looking at journalists, for example, we've met with journalists. Uh, and as you, as you know, the minister has announced a media council. So there are steps. So I think we are getting feedback from all, uh, 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 you know, all levels about change. I think everyone realizes that no matter what the, gov- what the government is doing, our goal must be to achieve this reform agenda and to fix the broken institutions. So I think that's where it's channeled, to be honest, at the moment. Uh, it's only been just over two months. And I think there is a lot of expectation on, in, in respect of this reform agenda going through. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about setting up and on being part of the Institutional Reform Committee? A lot of these people are former persona non grata uh, in, in this committee. Can you, I guess, voices who've been left out previously. Could you talk just a little bit about your vision of this committee and set, in setting it up? Oh, I think, um, okay, we were set up because, as you you know about the Council of Eminent Persons that had been set up, uh, they were of the view that there is no point talking about economic um, reform if we don't also have institutional reform. And uh, we've spent the last few weeks, uh, a couple of months, going, listening, hearing uh, people, having inquiries and, and hearing people with complaints and so on. It's, it's a huge task, actually. So we picked on seven key institutions, you know, the usual, which would be the judiciary, parliament, etc. And we have realized there's a lot of work to be done, honestly, because, um, for example, corruption is endemic in many of these uh, uh, places, like you know, immigration and so on. So I think I, I see a lot of value in what we're doing, but... It must be implemented. We can come up with the recommendations, but there must be the political will to implement. I guess I was asking about the selection sorry. of people on, oh, the, on the committee. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about choosing uh, the people on the institutional reform committee and why you chose certain people or why oh, certain, I, I, why I certain people? Correct. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, but I think we have a really good uh, mix of people because we work very, very well together. Uh, we have two former judges. Um, uh, Justice Vora is a former Court of Appeal judge. Then we have uh, Ma Wen Kwai, who is also on Suhakam, which is very critical because that's a huge human rights angle 
that comes into play. Uh, we have Prof. Prof Shad Farooqi, who is uh, uh, extremely uh, well, he, he has articulated a lot of his views uh, as an academic. And then we have uh, 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 Arshad, who is, of course, a strong army man. He's patriots, and he is very outspoken. Uh, outspoken. So I think we have a very nice mix of people, and we get all kinds of views. So I would, I'm, I, I'm very happy with the composition, actually. So far, have you seen that there's a direct line uh, from the Institutional Reform Committee, direct communications through to uh, Prime Minister Mahathir, or do you go through the Eminent Persons Council and DIME and uh, various others? How does, the, how does it work? Work. Okay, so, uh, so far we have met with the Eminent Persons Council. It goes through them. So we put up whatever... You see, we've also put up, as we were going along, although our report is due on, uh, on Monday, uh, in the interim, when anything urgent came up that required uh, attending to, we then uh, you know, met with the council, and that was communicated to the Prime Minister. That's how it is. Are you confident that that communication process works? One of the criticisms is that perhaps um, by funneling things through to DIME, you're only getting a one aspect of what is then reported through. Hello, listeners. This is a reference to DIME Zanudin an Amno politician come businessman who made his fortune while maintaining very close ties to the Amno establishment. His appointment as the chairman of the so-called Council of Eminent Persons, which is advising the new government on its reform agenda, needless to say, raised a few eyebrows. Well, I mean, so far it's been fine okay. as far as we're concerned. Right. Yeah, sure. It's just, look, it, I think the Prime Minister has a lot on his plate at the moment to deal with the politics of what's going on and, as you can see, you know, uh, nominations of the right people to the right to the institutions and all of that. So I, I can quite understand why why the system is set up the way it is. Okay, yeah. I know you can't talk specifically about the recommendations, but would you like to just talk broadly to our uh, listeners about what you think are the most urgent reforms needed in Malaysia? Um, certainly. I mean, we've heard representations, uh, and obviously uh, people are very concerned about the independence of the judiciary. And uh, we've looked at reforms that can strengthen that institution. Uh, we're looking at reforms that, um, which decentralizes executive power because uh, what we noticed is when you look at some of the amendments to the Constitution and so on, a lot of power vests, rests with the Prime Minister. And that's where we've had, we've had an issue. Uh, and of course, Mahathir has talked about uh, a limited term for the Prime Minister and the Muntri Basar. So that's something I think uh, we're looking at as well. Then, of course, we're looking at police um, and uh, looking at the setting up of uh, a police at IPCMC, which was a recommendation from an earlier Royal Commission. Um, parliament, strengthening Parliament, having select committees, more and more select committees, more accountability. Really, we're looking at an MCMC, which is another organisation we're looking at looking at checks and balances and ensuring that no matter who is there in power, we can check that power to a certain extent. Of course, it matters who is at the top, of course, but he cannot have a freewielding, uh, you know, the freewielding powers that he has been exercising, interfering in every institution. And, of course, the tragedy was at the end of the day what we realise is these institutions also bowed to the power of the exec executive. So we need to have, of course, we can put the systems in place. We are also looking at the nomination processes 
for uh, choosing the, the, the right candidates because that's where it, it's key, I think. No matter what kind of checks and balances you put in place, uh, if we don't get the right people, then it could break down again. So we're looking at all of that. What kind of indicators are you looking at that the government is going to agree to these reforms or, or what kind of indicators would you look at to show that they're not um, following through with some of these? Well, I think so far, let, let me be fair to the present government, they have been doing some very uh, important uh, or making some important changes. They are trying to keep their word and, and I'm aware that uh, uh, Mahathir is very particular about the manifesto, of course, which is not cast in stone, but nevertheless, that's quite a good reference point. So that's, that's still a reference point for them. Um, but once these, we, we will only know when the, we put up the recommendations how serious they are about carrying it through. Uh, and for me, uh, already by the appointments that they are making, they, they, they're moving in the right direction. Uh, not all the appointments, but most of it, key appointments, they're moving in the right direction. And I think um, uh, what I would look for is their commitment to fighting corruption, endemic corruption. If that, and I think that is, as from what they're saying, is a very important factor for them. Uh, I would look to see whether they are interested in the checks and balances, and I would look to see whether they are interested in decentralizing executive power. How much of that are you prepared to give up? Because let me tell you, uh, not many prime ministers will agree to a limited to, uh, term because it means their own power is curtailed, right? So those are the indicators I would look for. So if, if they're prepared to go that extra mile and say, yes, limited terms for all the Mantri Basar as well as the uh, prime ministers, that would be a very interesting uh, step for me. Um, yeah. You mentioned the, the term uh, length of the prime minister. Um, obviously, the... Uh next step is Anwar Ibrahim to at some point take over. Um, the, the current government has reformasi activists. It has former UMNO politicians. Um, Anwar Ibrahim is, is both of those things. Um, what do you think of an Anwar Ibrahim-led government and how will he manage being both a former UMNO politician and a, and a reformasi activist? Well, I think he's moved on from being an AMNO. I mean, it's so long ago. And he has suffered under that system. And actually, Anwar Ibrahim, I mean, and even Mahathir and so on, they have now seen what it's like to live under an oppressive government and be on the receiving end of that as opposed to being, you know, part of that. So I, it'll be interesting for me what, how Anwar Ibrahim wants, is going to lead this government. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether the, this agreement is cast in stone, but it's supposed to be in two years' time. He's taking a rest. He's getting his health back in order. Um, but I would imagine that he would be, he must be totally responsive to the reform agenda. That must be key. And it, it cannot be about politics, do you trust just that, politics. Do you trust that that is uh, going to be his agenda? I mean, he can be seen as a bit of a chameleon in some respects and, and his comments in Turkey recently. I was shocked by that. Sorry, I have to say this, but I was utterly shocked at the way they're embracing uh, uh, Erdogan. I, it, to me, it doesn't make sense at all. And, and you cannot say they're a shining example of, of democracy and when they've got hundreds of people in jail and for 
years, you know, you're not talking about months. So that part of me, I'm, I'm, but I think we need to take him on on that. And I think Anwar Ibrahim wouldn't mind an argument about that. You know, you know, I don't think he would shy away from that. We have to take him on on things like that. And we have to hold him just as accountable as we are going to hold the present government and whoever's, uh, you know, and Mahathir, etc. We need to know that this reform agenda that we are pushing will not be derailed by anyone. And I think we, we have to be totally unforgiving if they derail any of these. I'm not saying they can bring in all the reform, but there must be key things, as I say, which, which uh, like uh, decentralization of power, key things must still be there. So I'm hoping he's watching and he is listening and he's hearing because more importantly, he must hear what. And I, that's why I say the moral voice is, for me is always the civil society voice. And I hope he's hearing us, you know, and I and uh, watching and seeing what our aspirations are, because uh, it's all very well to put it in a manifesto and to to you know shout about it when you're in the opposition. When you're in government, it's a different thing altogether. So that's what I don't know if I've answered your question. No, but, abso- absolutely, yeah. and 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 thank you very much. And uh, we'll be we'll be sure to send uh, Anwar Ibrahim and everybody else a, po- a recording. Please podcast do, yeah, no, of, no of problem, this, uh, no issue with that. Yeah, yeah. but I'm sure um, if Anwar Ibrahim isn't listening to this podcast, uh, those those uh, yes. who are listening on you, Mandela, very much appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dato Ambigas Rinavasan in conversation with Dr. Ross Tapsell from the Australian National University. Our thanks to Professor Meredith Weiss and to Dato Ambiga for making the time to speak with us. Don't forget, this is just the first in a series of new Mandala podcasts on the new Malaysia. So keep an eye out for the next instalment over the next few days. If you're listening to this at SoundCloud or at the new Mandala website, remember that you can also subscribe to all of new Mandala's audio releases at iTunes or through the Apple podcast app. Just do a search for new Mandala. This podcast was made possible with support from the ANU Malaysia Institute and the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. New Mandala's home base is the ANU's Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. Thanks for listening.